0: In honor of Memorial Day this past weekend, the loss of our family members, our community members, our neighbors and friends who have given their lives for our country while serving in our military, three world white guys would like to take a moment of silence and play taps in their memory. This week on Three Rural White Guys, court is in session. Attorney Caitlin Slesser joins us once again as a guest co-host to talk about all the crazy legal stuff going on in our country right now. From a grand jury that has been convened to consider a possible indictment of the Trump organization, to efforts by the Republican Party to undermine democracy legally. This is an important episode this week, so practice your shorthand, grab your stenograph, and let's get these proceedings going. All right, we're here in the studio in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, in our garage, drinking some beer. My name is Mike Heaton. Uh, Joining me today is Jacob Dodds in the studio via Zoom. We have Kellen Gracie, and a little later, uh, we'll have um, uh, our attorney on call um, or on retainer that we do not pay, and nothing she says should be used in any legal way whatsoever, Uh, none other than Caitlin Slesser, friend of the podcast and uh, guest co-host occasionally. Uh, we're going to be talking about some really important topics, as we said earlier. Um, but before we do that, I think it's important for us to acknowledge a really big loss this week. Um, so serious. the Donald Trump's blog is closing down. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So what else is going on this last week? So did you hear about Nevada making the move to be the first in the nation primary, switching into a primary? They're primary, yeah. Yeah, so they voted and uh, likely signed by the governor to make it the first in the nation. Which,
1: I got to tell you, and, and I'll, say this, I'll say this on the record, I don't give a shit, uh, let them. Yeah? Because I, don't, I frankly don't think, it used to be the reason that, that Iowa was first in the nation was we were viewed as being a good cross-section of American voters. Right. We aren't. Nope, not anymore. We're a bright red state with a few little dots of purple intermixed throughout it so as far as i'm concerned Lennon and as bad as the iowa dnc fucked up the last one right we probably deserve it right
0: right we'll still probably be the first caucus i doubt we're going to be the first prime or we'll we'll, we'll probably have
1: two primaries ahead of us with yeah we won't be the first period though right right um which a lot of people don't realize that that's well it's not really gonna i guess impact the state's economy nearly as much as uh Will be the city of Des Moines mm-hmm. but I mean if you've ever been in Des Moines during caucus season every hotel's full right there's press everywhere yep it's a lot of money it's a lot of money I mean,
0: yeah. we have I have a couple friends that actually basically make a living off the caucuses they're based out of Des Moines doing marketing and campaign work
1: I mean that does filter out to the other places because they're following the candidates around right. all the little towns and you know right. they're staying there and eating there and, doing and we all get all things the things candidate too, staff
0: living here in the region and yeah it does help but uh, you know it's interesting though, Republic, It's really on Republicans. I mean, if, if Biden's running again, it doesn't matter for Democrats. If uh, but if, if so, if it's only Republican, it's probably better that the first in nation caucus is in Nevada, which is far more diverse because they're gonna. Nevada is a highly unionized. Their their gambling system is highly unionized. Their service industry people highly unionized. unionized and those are the, those are the Trump voters too, which is ironic. You know, the same sort of group of sort of low low wage workers and uh they're gonna have to speak to that. They don't have to speak to it and they get tons of press in Iowa.
1: Trump voters, as far as I'm concerned, are irrelevant. I I think I'm gonna sound nutty conspiracy theorist here, but <laughs> I uh I think the party is done. The leaders of the party are done with them. They're they're continuing this right now because they still just don't know like really how much influence he has. But the fact the fact that he shut his blog down for lack of activity, I mean, they said he was he, he was having four thousand interactions a week, right? The last two weeks, which you know, compared to what he had been, that's a significant drop off, right? Right. And I think people are just really. I've actually had some conversations with Republicans here in the last couple weeks, locally, and they're tired of his shit. They want him to just go away. They want their party back.
0: Will they take their party back, though?
1: Oh, yeah. I I think there's still a lot of the the Reaganite Republicans out there that that still believe in the, the core values of what the Republican Party was prior to Trump.
0: But so I, but, I hear you, I hear you. But then, like, Liz Cheney got ousted for calling him out. Yeah. Right? And, Marjorie and that's, Taylor Greene's still in Congress. And that's, the that's
1: but that's, again, they're, they're still afraid of that voting block. Right. So does that and I, I does think it mean it, anything then? Well, I, 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 I actually screamed at the TV the other day when I was watching some of the back and forth about whether or not to have the bipartisan commission on the right. January 6th thing. And... <sighs> There's just no other explanation for that level of insanity. There just isn't. I mean, I, 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 I forget who it was. Um, I'd have to go back and look because a friend of mine texted it to me. But uh, he sent me a video clip, and it was a, it was a Democratic representative, but he was flaming pissed. And he was basically saying, like, you guys act like this isn't any big thing. You you wasted millions of dollars, hundreds of hours, investigating Benghazi multiple times, came up right. empty every single time, and we literally had an attempted insurrection on our government, and you don't want to look into that at all? Right. Like, what, first off, what are you hiding? Right. And who are you trying to protect? And I think is, I mean, Biden's staying out of the fray on it, which I think is really smart.
0: You don't think he'll create one, a
1: White House commission? Oh, I, I don't think he has a choice at this point.
2: But to create one?
1: But I think he's gonna probably I think he's gonna probably distance himself. I mean he's tried to stay out of the fray of the whole Trump thing. Like he right. doesn't even mention his name. Right. Which, you know, is, is really smart mm-hmm. because then it doesn't give the idiots the uh, the ammunition to be able to come out and say, Oh, he's just he's just after Trump. He's just after Trump. See you can't right. even get Trump out of his mouth. Right, right.
0: Rent free, right? Is that the thing they're saying right now? Yeah,
1: that's his biggest insecurity. Is if he doesn't believe in bad press. So as long as somebody is talking about him, he considers that a
0: win. Right. So so let's go there for a second because this is a low point,
1: right, for the, the for Trumpism. He
0: lost an election. He he oversaw a a raid on the Capitol, an insurrection on the Capitol. Uh, he openly riled them up with their racist signs, with their white supremacy signs, with their anti-Jew signs, all these things, like very clearly in his group as he riled them up. Whether or not it's insurrection or not, at this point it doesn't fucking matter because our government checks and balances just completely broke down. But it's a low point. We have a lot of moderate listeners. We have a lot of rural Republicans. I, I, I know a lot of you out there. You've told me you listen to the show. Now is your time. go take your party back right we would love if you did i'm not some kind of like i don't i'm happy that republicans are down uh you know kind of bullshit like no i want good civil debate i need democrats to be held accountable like in, in good solid ethical debate in politics so go take back your party it is wide open Right I mean that's 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 the
1: message that needs to be out there right now.
0: Go take back your damn party, and
1: I think they're there. I think they're out there. I think yeah. there's a lot of them out there and and that's why I don't understand why this even continues to be an issue because right. they they're there, yeah, and they they want that i mean there's there's so there were so many never Trumpers in twenty sixteen right and and uh they're they're just deathly afraid of them still, and I just don't I don't understand it right. And, and it is, you know, we started out a little bit, the, uh, the notion that they're, they're ramping up to steal the election in 2024. Right. And that's not, that's not bringing your party back to sanity. Right. That's, that's failing to recognize your shortcomings as to why you're not a relevant force, political force anymore, except for playing fear politics. Well, and Paul Ryan,
0: you know, had a really weak rebuttal of, of Trumpism. But it was something, right? Because I want to have legit, regular debate again with Republicans who disagree with policy, not not the idiocracy and outright just lies that are the Trumpet party.
3: Yeah, well, you won't hear me singing the praises of Paul Ryan no. anytime soon, that's for <laughs> right. sure, uh, in any sort of context. But uh, yeah, you're right. It, it, at, at the end of the day, it's it's... The comedy tour, the the Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Green comedy tour, right? That's that's what drives Republican voters right now. That's what gets them going. Right. Um, it's culture wars. It's owning the libs. It's social media comment section conversations about politics. That's what Republican voters like, right? And that's that's what they're getting right now with the with the. With the way things things are looking. Okay, so. okay,
0: okay. Be quiet now. Our our lawyers here. So we wait. We have we have confidentiality, right? Some kind of. I'm, I'm pretty sure I can't hey remember. Y'all. Hey, Caitlin. Hello. All right, we have our, our our attorney on retainer that we pay a whopping zero dollars to. Caitlin Slesser, welcome back to Three Rural White Guys. It's good to have you back on the show.
2: All right, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Uh, am I the first repeat guest?
0: I think he might be. I think yes. so, right?
2: All right, all right. Yes, yeah. she is.
0: You, you launched us, Caitlin. You like got us off the, off on, you know, into the into the real world. Like we were just a bunch of nobodies, and then we pulled in this uh, attorney from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and people were like, "Oh, it's actually a fun podcast."
3: Naked yeah. babes in the woods. That's
0: yes, right. That's right. We were. We were. So, Caitlin, we really wanted to have you on the show again uh, because there's a lot of legal stuff going on right now, from the Supreme Court to the uh, grand jury. Uh, in New York. And uh, we really want to start, though, with, with basically what is legal electioneering. Um, there's been lots of efforts being done at the state level, especially, um, as well as some, some national efforts to really undermine uh, people's ability to vote, to, to increase the chances of, um, of, of states being able to overturn votes. And uh, gerrymandering is a big one as uh, the 2020 census data is finally out and state legislators who are controlled mostly by Republicans are, are using all their, their power to be able to basically rig uh, elections with really, really outlandish gerrymandering. Um, maybe start with gerrymandering uh, and then let, let's go from there.
2: Depends on what your state has set up as far as creating the your districts, right? So if the state has a, um, a an appointed political commission, or if the party in power gets to structure the the uh, voting districts, then that very much um, lends itself to gerrymandering. In the states that have a an even or balanced commission, I think that, and I don't know if commission is the right word, but when States who have an even or balanced process for for, uh, dividing up uh, voting districts or congressional districts or whatever we're looking at, Um, I think that gerrymandering is at a minimum, right? So I always like to think of when I was a child and my parents would always have the you cut, I choose rule when it comes to dividing things in half. Um, You know, Human nature is such that we're all always gonna try to seek an advantage or people are always gonna try to seek an advantage where they can. And if, if one person cuts and the other has to approve or something like that, uh, it seems like that would be a lot better system. Because otherwise sure. we just have this ping pong effect, right? Um, and and you know, one of the problems with gerrymandering is that in order to get, in order to undo gerrymandering, the party that's being gerrymandered out has to somehow overcome the odds that have been created by the gerrymandering to then change the gerrymandering. Right. So it's a very right. rigged system.
0: Well, let's go there for a moment. So there is a there is a a, a bill or a, a piece of legislation called HR one uh, at the federal level that is is pushing against gerrymandering and quite a few other sort of fair election um, advocacy type initiatives going on. Uh, what do you know about HR one? Have you have you been studying that at all or, or seeing what might be coming down the pipeline within the Biden administration?
2: The main uh, contents of HR one that I think we should all be interested in. Um, pushing forward, regardless of what party we support, would be um, rules regarding um, allowing as many people as possible to vote, right? So um, either anti-voter suppression or pro making voting easier. So such as mail-in voting, um, having ballot drop boxes, uh, plenty of time for advanced voting, extended polling hours, those sorts of things. All uh, we, we should all be trying to support more people voting. Right. Um The Voting Rights Act was basically gutted by the Supreme Court three years ago or so, two years ago now. Um, and I think bringing some of that back is part of H.R. 1 as well. I, I believe H.R. 1 also has some rules for changing campaign finance laws to reduce the influence of money in politics as well. And I think that's a, a, a topic that we should all care a lot about. Um, in a democracy, the idea that only the people with money get to make the rules or govern, I think should be antithetical to um, the, the country that our, our founders created and that we're uh, continuing to support.
0: Right. I think our guest, Lauren Hubbard brought that up last week, but one of the reasons Trump was so appealing, is he was just open about the corruption. He said that I would donate to both parties. And when I made a donation, if I made a phone call, they'd pick up whether or not they were Democrat or Republican. Yeah, he he exactly.
1: made the, he made the comment about, uh, if you show up to one of these things and there's no seat for you at the table, you're probably on the menu.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And to your, to your point, for sure, Caitlin, like we do currently, we are in a system and, and Trump finally said it out loud, which is I think why people uh, were attracted to him because he actually called out the corruption and said, I'm part of it. I know it's real because I'm literally part of it. I'm at the table, no matter what the party.
2: Yeah, so any sort of, you know, I'm I'm always in support of, taking more money out of politics whenever possible um, or reducing the influence of large sums of money. You know, that was Mitch McConnell's whole reason for being um, or has been his whole reason for being is to make sure that money can influence politics. He was one of the puppet masters behind, behind the citizens United ruling. Right. um, And teeing, you know, teeing up that fact pattern to work its way up to the Supreme court. Those kinds of cases don't happen randomly. They happen because of like decades of planning and planting the seeds and um, creating an environment where a decision like that will, will, will happen and then will hold up. So it's little stuff like that, right. That like, you know, we would, uh, I I think a lot of us would wonder why anyone would be opposed to getting people registered to vote. I'm sure we can speculate why, but
0: well, let's let's go, let's speculate. I mean, that's it. Kellen, you're, you're a big advocate of talking about why all this crap is happening, right? Like, you you run the numbers, you've seen the data, and the data says that the more people vote, the more Democrats win. Is that is that still accurate after this last last election, Kellen?
3: Um, yeah, it is. Uh, in areas where you have higher turnout, it, it's it's largely because um, it, overall in the overall population, the the country does lean to the left. Um, it's just the more politically active tend to be those who are older um, and those with more money and means, and those are groups that generally lean more to the right. But if you take the overall voting eligible population, uh, there's, a, there's a notable uh, left lean in terms of the distribution. So that being said, the more turnout you have, the greater sample of the voting eligible population you have represented in the, in the vote total. Therefore, you know, the closer you're going to get to that overall population distribution, meaning more left-leaning voters. So more benefit for the democratic party. So that's why uh, if you're uh, a Republican supporting voter suppression tactics is in your best interest. It's just, it's rational. It's, it makes sense.
0: So so that's the question I have is is there seem to be people sounding the alarm right now even President Biden during his Memorial Day speech I think at uh, uh, the Delaware Bridge or whatever it was that he that he gave a speech at uh, mm-hmm. on Memorial Day talked about how democracy is currently under attack you know and I think we all have a little bit of fatigue about democracy being under attack at this point but it seems that like there might be a little rejuvenation of of alarm bells and and raising the flags and saying hey Republicans are attacking democracy by undermining the democratic process in every single state that where they have power across the country and then they're doing it in different ways. Is it, it should we be raising the alarm right now in your mind, Caitlin? Like, is this a thing that we should be worried about? Is this just not more propaganda from one side or the other, trying to get us to pay attention again?
2: I don't know. I, I, I guess I would say that I take it really seriously because what, At any time people are trying to, or a group is trying to um, prevent people from voting or exercising their right to vote or making it complicated to vote, um, you're disenfranchising people. And I like to think that the foundation of a democracy is the ability of the citizens to choose how they run their government. If you're taking away the meaningful opportunity for people to weigh in on that decision, uh, you know, a, a, a democracy starts evaporating. And that's one of those kinds of problems that I think it's better to catch it early um, than it is to have to try to fix it when it reaches sort of the end stages. And so, you know, I I think these early warning signs are where we all should be sounding the alarm bells and we all should be putting our, where we should all be putting our efforts into turning this around because it only is going to get harder and harder as it, as it gets further down the path, the, all the little things add up together, right? Undermining the media, undermining the right to vote, making people doubt whether their vote counts. All that does is it creates apathy and an apathetic populace is, is not going to be paying attention as the people in power enrich themselves and do things to their own advantage. Or if you feel like there's nothing you can do about it, right? Like that kind of attitude I think is scary too, right? Um, oh, politics, I hate it, I don't pay attention to it, it doesn't matter, I don't have a say. I mean, that just makes sure that the few people who do care and have and, and want to pay attention can have an outsized amount of power.
1: Voting access aside, or voting results aside, um, you know, one of the things that I think is probably the most scary was probably one of our biggest stopgaps in the 2020 election was the fact that you had Honorable Secretary of State I mean, Georgia being a prime example, I mean, he was he was a Republican and he he had death threats. He had a lot of pressure put on him to shift that uh, the the result of of Georgia's election towards Donald Trump from Donald Trump himself. He he didn't. I mean, he refused to do that. But what happens if these guys start getting voted out and getting replaced with with the loonies who are going to go, yep, we won't certify that election.
0: Which, which we're seeing right now. Those, the loonies are running for secretary of state positions. And they're probably going to get them in some of these swing states based on the polling right now. So what happens in that so do
1: we So do we have any protections within the Constitution to prevent that from fraudulently certifying an election or decertifying an election?
0: Right, right.
2: Well, I don't know if we have like what the checks and balances are, you know, as you're describing the loony secretary of state, what I would say is the the courts are really our our last option, right? So um, suing for disenfranchisement um, actions by the ACLU, I'm sure the ACLU would come out and put up a fight against tactics like that. But, you know, keep in mind that the Republican Party has also been making a concerted effort for quite a long time to fill the courts with sympathetic judges. So while that's not across the board in every state, uh, there's been a lot of that that's been happening under the wire too. I just looked this up in the National Conference of State Legislatures, and it says that Iowa stands alone in how it handling handles redistricting responsibilities, that traditionally state legislatures are responsible for redistricting, um, except in Iowa that has a non-partisan commission that does it. So oh. You know, in many ways, Iowa has done a really good job of trying to keep politics out of a lot of our basic democratic topics. So we've done a really nice job in that arena and also in the way that we appoint judges in Iowa, which I think is something that a lot of people don't fully understand or appreciate, even if they do understand it, that the fact that we do not have elected judges, the fact that our commissions are citizens who are a mix of attorneys and non-attorney public um, and that we, it, it's a, it's a fairly apolitical process.
0: So there are models out there and Iowa just may be one of those, those good models. Who knew?
2: I just know that I don't hear about it a lot in Iowa. Right, so, right. you know, they're not like dividing Cedar Rapids down the middle and like putting Iowa city over with, you know, Waterloo or something. Right. So it, I figured that there had to be something in Iowa, but yeah.
0: And just to, to give some context to why this is a problem it's disenfranchising voters. And the best place to look to see that is Texas, uh, who just passed sweeping laws that are really hard-right stuff at their statehouse because they have a trifecta majority uh, at their state house. But it's important to look at. You know, we think Texas is, is becoming more and more purple in terms of their votes. You look at the last presidential election, and it went basically 52% to almost 47%. Uh, and it's getting tighter and tighter and more purple and purple, right? Well, their state house doesn't reflect that and their congressional representation doesn't reflect that and that's because of gerrymandering there's a there's a 2 to 3% point difference in every single space especially in congress it's 61% to 36% in terms of seats and they're about to get two new seats in congress and at the state house it's a little tighter but it's 56% to 44% at their state house republican versus democrat and those few percentage points you know those are worth Hundreds of thousands of people in Texas. Those are people that are getting their lines drawn around their neighborhoods to put them into districts. If they're Democrat, to put them into districts that are majority Republican, even if those majority Republican happen to be these big rural areas, swaths, you know, a hundred miles north of where they live. So it's it's disenfranchising people. It's disenfranchising their voice. And to Caitlin's point, they're about to pick up two new congressional districts with the new census. And, and they're growing even more now, and guess who's in charge of drawing the lines? Because they drew the lines the way they drew them already with gerrymandering, now those Republicans get to draw the lines again, and they will continue without any kind of oversight to ensure that people get disenfranchised and they stay in power, thus not providing a fair and equal voice and representation for everyone. So on the front end of the process, we have to have fair and just elections that don't, don't disenfranchise people. On the back end of the process, uh, if those things are happening, we have to have judges in place that actually can protect citizens to make sure they don't get disenfranchised. And Republicans have been abusing that process as well to the point that we now have an extremely partisan Supreme Court at the highest level, but even many of the lower level courts and state courts um, are becoming more and more partisan as well across the country. We have a big, big summer coming up, right? Caitlin, in terms of uh, issues that our Supreme Court will be looking at that are going to you know, set a precedent for, for many years to come, right?
2: Yeah, the summer is a really busy season for Supreme Court rulings, and so uh, we'll learn a lot about who our justices are this coming summer because this will be the first time this we're, – we're right now in a season where this is the first set of uh, substantial decisions we'll get from this group of justices. Right. it'll it'll be interesting to see
0: and let, let's write it down real quick from just a quick Google search, here's what it looks like it's on the docket for this summer. And this is all in addition to a, a pretty well direct challenge from Mississippi to Roe versus Wade uh, that'll probably be discussed later in the fall. So, but this summer is Obamacare again. Uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, is going to be challenged again. Uh, religious liberty versus LGBTQ plus rights is on the docket. Um, an Arizona voting rights law uh, that relates directly to that disenfranchisement that we were talking about uh, earlier. Um, Looks like there's going to be a police issue, warrants when in hot pursuit uh, relating to the Fourth Amendment. Uh, for those of you who are sports fans, it's NCAA amateur rules will probably be on the docket this summer. There's a whole case potentially around union organizing um, that that they'll be dealing with. Another is a challenge to a California law around dark money uh, where it's connected to charitable organizations to sort of commit fraud and bringing that to light. There's a free speech uh, issue they'll be taking up around the, the, the authority of public schools to discipline kids uh, for stuff they do off campus. And I mean, these are all big, important things that are direct challenges to issues within our Constitution that a very partisan Supreme Court will be taking up uh, really on behalf of, of Republican perspectives who are no longer and haven't been in the majority of our country for years at this point. So Kellen and Jacob, why we have Caitlin here, what other sort of legal or legislative issues do we want to talk about?
3: One one thing the Iowa legislature has been doing lately uh, is, as we all know, in, is just engaging in more of those culture wars, right? There's no uh, policy ideas coming out of the GOP these days. There's nothing absolutely that we could point to and say, um, these are things improving the everyday lives of, of Americans. And um, one, thing, one thing that's popped up here in Iowa, it's, it's popped up in other states as well, is um, banning of critical race theory and these different curriculum uh, curriculum packages or, or programs in, in public education systems across the U.S. Um, there's the 1619 Project that a journalist, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I think is her name um, had developed and, uh, her, she, she recently went up for tenure at her university and was, was denied tenure. And so these are, this is kind of a hot button subject, this idea of, of critical race theory, and it's, it's kind of permeating into politics. The Iowa legislature is one of many that have, uh, adopted this stance that critical race theory is something bad that needs to be stopped, right? We can't, we can't, talk about those kinds of things in our public school education or public, public education curriculum. Um, So Caitlin, what are your, what are your thoughts in in terms of, of these sorts of laws? Um, You know, whether it be from a sort of a a parent's perspective or um, a lawyer's perspective.
2: I think it's embarrassing. Uh, I think that during, well, first of all, during a time when our, The citizens of our state have a lot of important things going on that they need to have addressed. The idea that our elected officials are wasting their time on something like this is frankly offensive and something that we all should be making a lot of noise about. Um, As a broader issue, uh, I think the idea of our legislature getting involved in what should or should not be discussed or taught when it comes to race um, is really dangerous. The idea that uh, white people shouldn't be told or learn this information because somehow it's um, too offensive or it, we can't handle it or tolerate it is something we all should be embarrassed by. I just can't, I keep coming back to that word. It just feels like a very embarrassing situation to be in. Um, it, I would dr- bring it down, bring it back even to prior discussions I've had with the three of you about. Uh, what are we doing here? Do we have a state where we want to attract young families who want to come here and work and make their life and their profession in Iowa? Uh, if so, I, I don't. I would posit that this is not the way to go about showing that you're a forward-thinking, welcoming place that values um, that values young young professionals and families. I, I also think that older folks should be offended by it too. But um, when you just think about uh, Iowa's um, growth and future, I, I, it seems antithetical to that. So I honestly don't know what, what we're doing here. I think on a national basis, we've seen this play out with um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is an Iowa native, grew up in Waterloo, went to West High School, um, and then went on to create the uh, 1619 Project to shed a light on some of the ways that history has uh, either left conveniently left out uh facts related to race or has twisted or even um uh, turned some of that on its head or uh, appropriated or co-opted um history from our earlier uh, black citizens and so a project like that and followed by her being denied tenure followed by legislatures passing ridiculous laws like what the Iowa legislature just did. I mean, this is all, you can run a through line through all of these things and see that what we're really trying to do is maintain white supremacy, maintain a system where certain people can receive unearned benefits at the expense of other people, and specifically white people at the expense of black people, and that we don't want to examine that. And um, going back to 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 the word embarrassing. I I just think we should all be embarrassed by it. And more so we should be, um, we should be actively working to push back against this. Right.
3: Is this something then real quick, is this something that's easy to overturn easy to reverse?
2: Well, subsequent legislature could, um, could enact a, a law or, or, um, uh, change it. Um, a, a judicial attack uh, that's successful could could overturn it or challenge it. So I don't know what's in the works. That's where I would say the ACLU is probably looking at all of these hot button topics that are passing through our legislature right now and wondering what sort of civil rights or um, constitutional claims can be brought against these kinds of laws. And I think what's really underappreciated by some of this stuff is when our legislature passes stupid laws that cannot hold muster in our courts, our government then has to dump resources, i.e., time and money and personnel, into defending those laws, right? We have a whole uh, attorney general's office that is tasked with defending the laws of the state of Iowa. And if they're defending indefensible laws, I mean, just like everything else, they're wasting our taxpayer money and our time, and we should be much more concerned about this, and we should be much more vocal about our concern of this. Like, imagine, imagine the state of Iowa was a corporation, and all of us were sort of co-CEOs. Like, is this the way that we would let our employees project manage or like direct our um, our business? Absolutely not. I mean, right? Like, how many of us have been in a management position and given our employees a total waste of time project for no reason other than like, I don't know, maybe we can make it sound good. I mean, that's a ridiculous idea. We're, we're, we're doing this all backwards. By the way, I'm just going to segue into just a brief passion point of mine, which is that I think we're all like a lot of us are parents in this room. Are we all parents? I guess I don't yeah. know. Mm-hmm. yeah yep. Yep. So we're all parents. Okay. So my, my goal is that we as parents should be raising the next generation of academic superstars who graduate from college and instead of going into the private sector and making as much money as humanly possible, which I think was what a lot of us growing up were given as a message, um, and either by society or by schools or by family, we should be encouraging our best and our brightest to go into government. We should, we should be run by the smartest kids in our classes. Um, our our government should be filled with our best and our brightest. And I think, I think it's on us as parents raising this generation to turn that into a attractive um, uh, tr- career trajectory for our young people. I tell my daughter, do- my sixteen year old daughter all the time that I want her and her friends to take the energy that they have of, about their you know burgeoning political interests and. Go plowed into the you know National Institute of Sciences. Go plowed into the Legislative Affairs Office, or you know the OMB, or um, you know run for office, or do the unsexy bureaucratic work um, where, where all of this stuff really matters. Because I think it's the little, it's these little day-to-day decisions um, and actions that are, are going to make a difference. So soapbox rant over, but I. Um, just feel really strongly that we're really settling when it comes to our, our government these days.
0: We're talking about our kids. We're talking about getting involved in government. Kellen and I have been making a habit of sitting through city council meetings. This is our very first episode. We talked about how we're going to start going to city council meetings and we're going to talk about it all the time, but we never really have. And the reason is it is boring as fuck. Okay. (laughs) And yeah, local government can be boring. Don't get me wrong. It can be boring, but It's not always boring. It doesn't have to be boring. And we don't just have to be focused on sewer systems and, you know, dilapidated housing, which is what every single meeting is about, right? Kellen is part of this project, and I don't know how much I can mention GoDaddy on this, but Kellen is part of this project that is analyzing micro-businesses and micro-business health in rural communities, especially, with all all communities, but especially rural communities is what I've been looking at. In our county, Henry County, has the worst I don't know what your venture score what's the term what, what term do you use Kellen
1: venture density
0: venture density in, mm-hmm. in southeast Iowa and to be fair it is rural communities that have the lowest venture densities uh, across the country now venturing is starting a new business it's it's selling products online it's all these different things that you have you have a much better definition for than 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 that I'm probably given now but it takes creativity it takes it takes risk. And it takes incentivizing from local governments. And there's local governments and local entities in nearby communities that are incentivizing small business development. They're incentivizing creativity. They're incentivizing a culture of risk taking, of creativity, of all these things that are happening. You look at Nuboko, sorry, Nubo in Cedar Rapids. Nuboco is the company that sort of manages that process. And they're incentivizing. They're making it fun. They're making it doable, all those things. And the local government in Cedar Rapids is part of that. They're taking advantage of federal programs, of state programs, and it's a constant influx of funding, of ideas, and and growth that they've seen over the last few years. And most rural communities seem to not, they almost hate the idea of government programs.
3: But there's the, the reason why, Mike, is... You, you go to folks in our community with these kinds of ideas and what do you hear back? You hear, well, you're just, you you just want to raise taxes and spend them like a communist. Right. You know, how do you, how do you convince, how do you convince people in our community to buy into that kind of stuff?
2: this problem is so interesting to me because the same people who will not see the value of pooling resources at the government level to better a community are the same people that i know are pooling their resources either at a nonprofit or church or school setting to to do the same thing so it's not that people don't believe in pooling resources in order to raise all boats it's that for some reason, there is a mental block against doing it in the government, um, yes. as opposed yes. it's, to doing it's, it it's at church they,
1: or it's, it's because they think government is is officious and, and wasteful. Right? There's and, a, they're going to waste all of their money. And and as a as a person that works in state government, I can tell you that that you the, waste a lot of money. No the the government's <laughs> the government is far more efficient than any private corporation.
3: I think it's ironic the the commercial I hear on Sirius XM for it it's like this Christian health network and you you buy into a pool uh, a basically a risk pool and you pay for you pay for the way it works uh, practically is when you're in the hospital you're at the doctor's office you pay full price in cash and then you submit it to be reimbursed by this health network. And, you know, the, once you get around everything, all it is, is a socialist pool of, of pooled resources of everybody shipping ch- in. It's just limited to this one community. And these are the same folks who, who say things, you know, like keep your government hands off my Medicare, right. you know, stuff like this. So it, it, I, I think there's, a misunderstanding of a lot of these different programs and the benefits that they provide. I think there's a misunderstanding of need that we're all human and mortal, and right. there are things we all need eventually at some point in our our lives.
2: A more cynical view, Kellen is um, what's posited by Heather McGee's book. I don't know if anyone's read "The Sum of Us: uh, What Racism Costs Everyone." Uh, that's a that's a really good read if you haven't. But it she talks about how. Uh, basically the the Civil Rights Act required the government resources to be spread around to everyone, not just to white folks. And as a result then, basically the white people in America revolted against that and withdrew their support for this, this pooling and redistribution of resources. So her example that sort of serves as the thesis for the whole book is that when city pools were integrated, Rather than allowing the black children to swim in the city pools, the cities all chose, but many cities chose to just drain their pools so no one could use it. So it took it away from everyone um, in order to make sure that it wasn't spread around for everybody. Uh, And and so, Kellen, when you when you give that example of that, you know, the pooled resources for healthcare, I mean, isn't that kind of the same thing? It's like we don't want pooled healthcare for everybody. We want pooled healthcare for the people who are like us and. Um, or who we feel like are deserving of this right this idea that certain people deserve it and certain people don't right
3: yeah there are these bargaining experiments that they do or that they did in in a published piece in, in political science and it echoes what you're, what you're describing there I think the setup was you're given resources money for instance and you can allocate them different ways however you see fit but some people would rather lose it all and not and walk away with nothing if it meant preventing their enemy or their, uh, wh- whoever they see as being in opposition to, um, if it meant preventing them from getting anything as well, like they would rather take rather than, rather than say I get $20, my enemy also gets $20 or I get $50. My enemy gets $10. They would rather take $0 than allow their, their different, different, uh, iterations of that. But in social sciences, it's, it's a, There have been a series of experiments looking at it, and it's kind of an interesting phenomenon.
0: Well,
2: That's the idea that we've all bought into the zero-sum lie, and um, it really just doesn't have to be like that.
0: Well, I want to take it back to what Jacob was talking about, too, and and how what you guys just described plays out in real time in, in a rural community. If you have a small town, there's really one person that deals with the USDA grant or the SBA grant that could potentially bring millions to your county if you apply for it and you get it funded and it brings in all these jobs and all these new projects and infrastructure or whatever each of these various proposals that the Biden administration is pushing all those are going to provide funding to our county level and if you have one or two people who have this sense of mistrust of government funds or uh, that that psychological disposition that you all described earlier like I'm not going to we're not going to give free money to people that don't deserve it we're you know we're not going to take any of it all give it back like our governor decided to do with COVID-19 testing money to, to Jacob's point I think we have people like that that are in leadership positions in our rural communities that just don't want to deal with that kind of funding despite the fact that we're talking millions of dollars that we could be applying for and getting in our county that would have massive massive impact.
1: Well, and and I can tell you having been on the on the receiving side of those grants, I think a lot of the reason for that is because there's usually strings attached to that. Sure, sure. And they don't they don't want to they don't want to deal with those strings. Right. And and usually the strings aren't anything that that they're, they're not obstacles that can't be overcome. But it it falls back into that same same bane of I want to benefit my people. I don't want it to benefit these people over here. Right. And and if we get this, we're gonna to have to do that. Right. And it, it goes back to what Kellen said of uh I'd rather have no money than share my money. Yeah. Which is really sad.
0: And is there a capacity thing too, you think at all? Uh I look at say say let's talk about your the hospital you're with. If you're in a city and you're receiving government funds, like say from from the SBA or from some kind of healthcare initiative through their their the the health and human services department or division at the state or federal level, you really have to have staff that can manage those grants. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you the, the more rural you get, can you manage those grants? Is it even possible? And you know, and so then you have people at the national level. This is one of my big issues is of subsidiarity. We, we like to give a lot of money away at the national level, assuming it's going to work at the, so like Biden is really pushing the rural agenda right now. He's like, we're going to fund this in rural. We're going to do infrastructure in rural. We're going to give uh, economic development in rural, but our rural communities, because they're all bubbled and they're small, are they, do they have the capacity to even handle that influx of cash, to manage it, to deal with those strings, whereas a urban area would because they have a lot more people and a lot more staff and a lot more. Ability to spread
1: out those strings, and and I would say no, uh, we don't have the capacity. No, because uh, I, I mean I, I can again tie that back to my own personal experience. I during my my last year of employment there, we we my department received a two hundred thousand dollar grant. I mean, two hundred thousand dollars is a big chunk of money, but you know it's not a ten million dollar business development grant. And spending the money was easy, um, but it was submitting the financial reports and the, uh, after action reports. And I mean, we had to do regular reporting on what we were doing with the money, not just from an accounting standpoint, but because the granting agency wants to be able to go back and say, you know, because they've, they've got a Senate appropriation for this, right. That this is what we're doing with this. This is the good that this money's doing. And you know, if you're not experienced in that, which, admittedly, I was not. Right. Um, but uh, uh, if you're not experienced in that, um, not only that, but it takes a lot of time. Right. So you know, if you're in a position where that's not your full-time job, is managing a grant. Right. You know, in my case, I was running a department. Um, you know, that's that's more time away. That's, that's di- diverting your attention away. Right. And I can totally understand how there's some people that would say it's not worth the hassle. And to take it back to the legal side too, Caitlin, I, this is
0: legislated funding, right? I mean, these are these are literal laws that get passed that appropriate dollars. Do they need lawyers to be able to manage this? Do you guys get picked up like by these larger entities, by cities to, to come in and make sure that, that this reporting is correct, that they're using the funding correctly? Do lawyers get involved and is, is it even fiscally possible for a, a small town like Mount Pleasant or other rural areas to be able to hire lawyers to manage the project is that even a thing?
2: You know, I don't know. you know I, The experience I've had was with the, um, the PPP uh, that was rolled out last year from the SBA. Um, and I know there were entities that were seeking legal counsel in their applications and things like that. Whether you need a lawyer or an accountant or just somebody who's skilled at dealing with government forms, um, the, the reality is that it's true that it just requires more resources and that can sometimes be daunting. I understand, especially in a rural community where maybe you have the money and even want to hire someone, but even even finding the right person could be difficult. I wonder what the solution to that is though. I mean right. um, it, it, is it simplifying the process? Is it building it in, you know, building that into the grant? is funding for a position that would manage the grant? Um, is there a way to pool management of the grants? That there's sort of a, a regional grant manager for a, a group of communities that all feel like they want to seek these grants but don't have the um, manpower or woman power to do so. They could maybe, but they could all together hire one person. Um, you know, that's where I go back to uh, the idea of like let's let's get our best and brightest on these problems and let's let's not. See it as another opportunity to bash government, but rather uh, uh, something we can all work together to maximize the benefits of our to our community and our citizens. I'm discouraged to hear that communities opt out of uh, receiving large grants that could help, if just because they're intimidated or maybe don't want to deal with the hassle or headache of right. receiving those funds. I mean that that means that the incentives are all wrong, right? That means there's something wrong with the program.
1: I think to a <laughs> certain degree. There's that component of it that it's the it's that attitude of, no, we'll figure this out on our own. Yes. I, I don't yes. I don't want I don't want to have any more involvement with the government. I don't want to handout from the government. We'll figure this out on our own. We'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Right. Mentality on it. That, so
0: let's take it out of philosophical for a second, and take it into practical, because that's exactly right, Jacob. And it's on, on two levels. One, get the government out because we can pull ourselves up via our bootstraps. And two we don't need to be partnering with our with our neighboring communities we can do it on our own you know leave us alone fairfield washington they're they're weird over there or they're strange over there and that's not how the federal government works that's not how funding works they can't manage 99 different county grants for the state of iowa they can manage a handful and they're going to do it in regions they're not going to do it in 10,000 person communities they're going to do it in 60,000 person multiple counties when they when they provide their funds and so we have to partner we have to create hubs and and the latest one is, a, a, I think it's a small business grant, small business uh, administration, SBA grant. They literally call it a hub and spoke model, which is that regional regional way of, of funding. And if we're not set up to receive grants that way and manage grants that way, we're not gonna get grants. And other communities and other regions that do are gonna start kicking our ass. And you can literally look at the data and see that happening in real time as our numbers are going down. Our free and reduced lunch rates are going up. Our poverty levels are going up. And our economic development numbers and similar to that that micro business venture score uh, that we were talking about with Kellen's work uh, is it remains low. And we don't see that kind of growth that we need to survive. So that mentality that you're describing, Jacob, that mentality that our Republican friends, that independent pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just crap, that isn't in reality. Uh, it's hurting us right now. It is literally hurting Our communities and our rural communities and they are dying in real time around us and that's on us we need to start adjusting to the realities around us so that we can regrow our rural communities
2: and you know i think it kind of goes to one of the one one problem that pops up a lot in government and that we've kind of touched on today is this kind of scarcity mindset or the idea that um for some reason helping out someone else is going to result in less for me, when in reality, this is a very concrete example of how cooperation would result in way more for everybody. And, you know, I I guess I would maybe suggest that this is where true, enthusiastic, positive leadership can make a difference, right? You can imagine a situation where the right person could get this launched, the right person who's a coalition builder, who, um, who people like, who people trust and who knows and um, understands the area. Uh, and, and I think this is where, you know, we as um, uh, interested and in involved citizens can start putting out those feelers and encouraging the people that we see who have good leadership skills to put that into um, these kinds of roles, economic development, um, county government, city government, town, you know, city and town government, state government in those areas, because, you know, if, if everybody, if everybody was of this mindset, I think it'd get done. I'm sure, you know, some folks in town, right. Who people listen to and people follow. And I guess I I keep going back to leadership matters and the messaging from the top matters. I mean, even, even imagine if our government, if our governor was decided to take this on as something that she wanted to continue to get out there into the public. Right. Like Hey, let's encourage our cities and towns to work together to maximize the economic development funds that can come into Iowa. I mean, that would make a big difference too. I, I think of I think of these things as coming, you know, from both the grassroots and from the top. But I think it's um, it seems like an opportunity where some some leadership could really make a difference.
0: And that that's really what it comes down to, right? Is is go get involved? Uh, it's twofold. I, I know our chamber director here in Mount Pleasant open door policy. And, and she absolutely wants to get new leaders involved and get people to, to engage in their community. Uh, there's a lot of apathy when it comes to our community and development, and uh, she'll help anyone that wants to get going with it. Uh, in addition to that, all of our city council members, they're, they're doing what they can, but no one ever runs, by the way. Uh, no one comes to the city council meetings. No one pushes an agenda of economic development for them. And so go talk to them. Go meet with them. Have good, not, not challenging, hey, you're doing a horrible job type crap. Go sit down. They'd love to have a coffee with you and talk through some of this stuff because they represent you and they want to help. But you have to actually pay attention. You have to be engaged and you have to stop being apathetic. And that's really the issue. It's hard to be connected. It's hard to understand what grants are available. It's hard to see the big map and um, web of all these resources and how they're all connected so maybe that's a role we can play, guys. Uh, you know, a lot of rural communities have similar, similar situations we're in. Maybe we can start sharing stories. Maybe we can start uh, putting some resources online that can connect people uh, to, to their resources to help how to grow uh, their communities in a positive way. Uh, we're going to look at that. We'll, we'll have a nice discussion, and hopefully by the start of season three, we might have a little more, uh, a little more robust uh, resources and action steps that, that we can do uh, in our rural communities.
2: Yeah, I think there comes a point in life where you look around and if you're, if you're angry um, or uh, energized enough about um, a topic and that what people are not doing, then it probably means you're the person who should be doing it, right? If you feel passionately about something and you're disappointed that others are not doing something about it, it's, it's probably you that needs to do it. Um, so, yeah, I'd echo that.
0: Nice. So, Caitlin, before we lose you here, we originally brought you on to talk about grand juries, specifically about what's going on in New York with the Trump organization and the grand jury there. We're not all that familiar, most people, I don't think, with the grand jury process and sort of how they work. Can you sort of lay some of that out for us so we understand what the heck's going on?
2: Grand juries are in the news a lot right now. I think we've all heard about the uh, New York, the, the state of New York convening a grand jury for uh, investigating Trump and Trump organization executives for various criminal activities. Um, I think it's interesting to think about grand juries and their role in our society. They're actually uh, embedded in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, and that's the amendment that generally we think of as um, giving us our Miranda rights. So that's the amendment. You can plead the fifth if you don't want to incriminate yourself, but it also contains um, a right to a grand jury. in order to be indicted for a crime. So indictment is the first level of crime, that's sort of the charging level, that's where you've been accused and then you start the formal process of criminal proceedings. Um, Distinguish that from conviction, which is where you're either guilty or not guilty. So um, in order to be indicted under federal law, you have to, uh, a grand jury has to make a finding that there was probable cause to indict you. Interestingly enough, this is one of those constitutional Uh, rights that has not necessarily been fully integrated into state law. So while most states do have a grand jury, I think there's only a couple that do not. um, Many states never use them or rarely use them. Iowa, for example, is a state where grand juries are rarely used. Um, But anyway, they're uh, super secret proceedings where people instead of prosecutors get to investigate and evaluate the evidence of a crime and make a decision of whether someone should be charged. The original drafters of our constitution and the early US government was very suspicious of um, the power being concentrated in any one person's hand, and I think immediately recognized that prosecutors have a lot of power. And so that's where the grand jury right comes um, comes in, is that makes sure that you, it's really your peers in the community that are deciding whether or not you should be charged with a crime.
0: Right. So where are we at in the process right now in terms of this grand jury around a potential, uh, uh, Trump issue? Like, are we just, we, they've convened, have they indicted? Like what's, what's just for our listeners that haven't been paying attention. How far are we along in the process?
2: They have convened and have started investigating. And so this will be the top secret portion where witnesses will come in and testify investigator. Well, I think, I think at the state level, um, hearsay is not admissible in a grand jury proceeding, while in the at the federal level, I think hearsay is admissible. So I think they'll have to hear directly from the witnesses themselves rather than the investigators who have compiled the evidence. And so if that's true, if that if that's the model that New York uses, it'll be sort of like an extended, very casual trial, right? You can ask open-ended questions. There's no, you know, there's no limitation about cross examination being limited to certain scope. You know, the, the um, grand jurors can ask pretty much whatever they want of the witnesses. They can also ask the prosecutors to bring them additional witnesses or additional information, So that's the stage they're at. I think everybody will be sworn to secrecy, all the participants, um, all the jurors. Um, In Iowa, a grand jury has seven people. Um, I think in New York, it's bigger. Um, I've seen 12 or 16 in some states. In all likelihood, something this complicated and this high profile will take a very long time. I don't know whether it will be a few months or several months, but I would anticipate it would be at least a few months.
0: Is it even possible to find an unbiased, juror in this day and age
2: you know i guess what you're really asking is like how would you ever find a juror that didn't already have their mind made up about trump is is it possible to to be a living breathing human being in the united states of america in 2020 and go in with a totally open mind (laughs) about donald trump uh that's a great question i think that i'm sure that's one that the um, the folks involved are grappling with. There's procedures for striking jurors um, at the grand jury level, just like there are, you know, as you, if you're familiar with how um, a trial jury or a petite jury, I think they're called, um, works. You can, you know, the attorneys can strike jurors that they believe have bias. So there is a procedure for that. My guess is it has or will take a very long time to get that group of people who everybody feels good about.
0: And guys, I apologize. I didn't get my law and order sound effects in the system. Clunk, clunk, <laughs> clunk, clunk. Yeah, I wanted to have that there. <laughs> so, when will we know what, what this is all about? Is it after Trump? Is it after the Trump organization? Is it after family members? Is it, is it completely devoid of, of Donald Trump himself? What's the timeline? When will we know about all this?
2: Well, at the end, there'll be an indictment or not. Right. So they'll leave, either there'll be no indictment, in which case we'll we'll know um, or there will be an indictment, which in which case we'll also know because um, criminal charges will be public uh, information. So they it, it's not like a um, convict like when a jury convicts. I don't think it has to be unanimous. Um, but I do think it has to be over 50%. I guess I don't know the particular rules of New York and Iowa. You have to have five of the seven. This is to indict indict indict. indict. Yeah. And remember indictment. So, uh, mini law school primer here, but indictment, um, requires probable cause, which is a standard of proof that is lower than proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what's required to convict. Right. So, we like to, for those that are mathematically minded, probable cause um, is is maybe like around a 50% level, whereas proof beyond a reasonable doubt is closer to that 90 or 99%.
0: So Kellen, what do we say, or Jacob, what do we say to, to our listeners or other people who like to comment on our Facebook pages and so on? Like, Trump is now living rent-free in your head. Why don't you get over this and move on? Like, why is this even important to do with a former president in your minds?
3: Well in my, in my mind, it's all about rule of law. It's all about the idea that the law applies equally to everybody, regardless of who you are and your status and your privilege and so on and so forth. So
1: And you, you can't ignore the irony of the uh, or the party of law and order right you right know, the whole thing that he ran on last year. So and the
0: locker up from four years ago.
1: Uh, and I wanted to back up, I, I, I do have have one question with regards to the indictment. Every once in a while you hear about these grand jury cases, you know, whatever it might be, where there's a sealed indictment that comes out. And oh. what is the purpose of that and what would be the likelihood that, that anything with regards to, to the Trump organization would result in a sealed indictment?
2: I think a sealed indictment is just sort of a temporary state for an indictment prior to maybe the a warrant being issued or the arrest being made or the charges being made known to the defendant. Right. So it would be sealed for the period of time prior to the defendant knowing about it. So I, I don't know what the likelihood would be in a case like this to me, probably low. My guess is because of the nature of it that everybody involved would kind of would maybe have a heads up on that. But I, I, I guess like, as I'm, as I'm talking out loud, you know, someone like Donald Trump is potentially a flight risk Um
0: well, he said so, it, that's, right? He literally was, said it, right? He's going to go to Europe. That's what I was just
1: at, was going to go at, is, is really the investigation is not Trump himself. It's the Trump organization. So, right. so I mean, there could be potentially multiple people indicted as a result of this. Right. You wouldn't want them to have the, the leg up to be able to, especially with the resources that most of them have at their disposal. So. Right.
0: And, Jacob, I know you have one big last question that was
1: eating at you uh, that you wanted to ask Caitlin about before we wrap up. Um, We kind of talked about some of the lunacy surrounding, you know, Trump and the fact that he thinks he's going to be reinstated in August and all of that. And we were talking a little bit about the, before the, before the show about this is you've got Sidney Powell out there continuing to peddle this. And, you know, we saw just the absolute insanity and the circus that her and, and Rudy Giuliani did, you know, during the whole election thing. And, (laughs) It sort of begged the question of how how have they not been disbarred? What does that require? Is is it not enough to just be batshit crazy? <laughs> <laughs> so we figured we'd ask the attorney what it requires to be disbarred.
2: <laughs> sure, sure. Well, usually what it requires to be disbarred is to violate one of the um uh ethical codes that we are bound by as attorneys. So There's a process for filing a complaint against someone who you think has violated one of those provisions. And then there's a variety of different sanctions that can be issued. So, disbarment being the most serious, but, um, you know, reprimands or corrective actions being kind of on the lower end of things. So, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's made a complaint about her. I don't know if anyone's bothered. Um, She, you know, the idea is that the profession needs to regulate itself to make sure there aren't like rogue, bad attorneys who are ruining people's lives. I don't know what to say about Sydney Powell. <laughs> 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 I mean, I think everybody knows what you're getting when you when you um, when you work with her, perhaps. So,
3: so
1: those two have probably ruined themselves. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. would be the hope with I any reasonable see. credibility, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I would be surprised if there has been some um ethical uh sanctions against her in you know various states. Who knows?
0: Sure, sure. Caitlin, it's been awesome to have you back on the show. Seriously, uh, you are just a wealth of knowledge, and we absolutely learned. I know I did, learned a crap load about, about the legal system. And also, it's just nice to see your passion. The the fact that you you care so much about Iowa, so much about rural America, um, and we're gonna have you on again if you're okay. If we can keep you on retainer for zero dollars, we, we'd love to love to have you on again in the future, at least once each season. It'd be good to have you on.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd love to. Thank you. It's been a, a blast talking with you guys today, and I'm always happy to to join you, um, come down and join you for beers or for pizza or whatever you wanna whatever you wanna give me, I'll take. Perfect.
0: <laughs> so perfect. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again, Caitlin. And that wraps up this episode of Three Rural White Guys. Uh, check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also check out our website, threeworldwhiteguys.com. And we look forward to having you join us again next week.